Welcome to Boundaries of Expression and the latest episode in Article 19 series on the right to protest. I'm Joe Glanville. Today we're talking about the LGBTQI plus community and the limits on their right to protest around the world. More than 60 countries criminalise same-sex relations and some have passed laws targeting the transgender community too. Sentences range from life imprisonment to the death penalty. That level of intimidation means that standing up for your rights can be a very risky business. And Article 19 has documented the tactics used against activists in a report on protest. For communities that are marginalised and discriminated against, protest may in fact be one of the few routes to being heard and influencing change. So protecting that right to freedom of expression is crucial. In this podcast, we're talking to activists in Serbia and Ghana. Serbia has an openly gay prime minister, but same-sex union still isn't lawful, and there is an ongoing battle for equality. In Ghana, same-sex relations are criminalised, and the community is facing draconian legislation that will outlaw even advocacy. Rita Nkatia is a queer feminist activist in Ghana. In 2021, a private members' bill was tabled, the Promotion of Proper Human Sexual Rights and Ghanaian Family Values Bill. It will not only introduce a five-year sentence for anyone identifying as LGBTQI+, but a duty for Ghanaians to denounce members of the community, which also carries a five-year sentence. So 2021 changed us completely. We experienced several attacks on our community, including the police raiding of a community space, the arrest and detainment of 21 participants attending a paralegal LGBT rights training, and then finally the introduction of this heinous bill, right, that could see suspected LGBT people thrown in jail for up to 10 years. The queer community is keenly aware that it is being hunted, right? So people know that they have to be much more careful when they're in public spaces, Some folks have been kicked out of their homes and their places of employment. Uh, Suspected LGBT students have been expelled from school. And many people generally feel that their political leaders do not value their humanity. And this feeling of fear and rejection is fairly consistent across the region, right? So we see that in some countries like Nigeria, they've already passed aggressive laws against LGBT people. And in other countries like Senegal, they've been able to escape the introduction of these anti-LGBT laws. Um, I do worry, however, that because Ghana is such a strong political and economic player in the region, that we could be setting a bad precedent for future legislation in other countries. And yet, at the same time, I've seen a strong surge of political activism by activists, community members, and allies who recognize that this bill is fundamentally anti-human. Right. So I think about people like Angel Maxine, who's Ghana's first ever openly transgender musician, who has spread her message as far and as wide as she can, that we should kill this bill. I think about organizations like Rightify Ghana, who have been at the forefront of monitoring the media for spreading vicious lies about our communities. And I'm equally inspired by the ways in which queer communities are resisting across social media platforms. So I'd say right now that the environment is uncertain for a lot of us who feel that this bill could fundamentally change our ability to exist and function in our own country. So from what you're saying, there is, despite 
the climate, there is still space for the community to protest and be heard. Yeah, there there is some. It's it, there isn't a lot of space, but there some does exist. And I, you know, there's always a risk involved when people protest against the state and more powerful actors, right? Um, and Ghana has its own history of resistance dating as far back as in the independence era. So it's not unheard of for people to register the dis- their displeasure with the state of affairs through open protest. Um, but for LGBT people, obviously, you know, the situation is quite dangerous to protest in public spaces, for example. And so much of the protests that I've seen happening is actually in online spaces where it's relatively safer to do so. And so I can think about campaigns like hashtag kill the bill or hashtag we are Ghana that are telling the story of a community that is fed up of being mistreated in their own country, right? But a lot of that, as I said, a lot of that protest can live online where people feel relatively safer than if they were to protest in in the streets. Were you surprised when the bill was tabled? You know, we had heard rumblings of it for a few years, but I certainly did not think that this bill would be seriously considered in Ghana's parliament. The country has major issues around access to employment, health and education that always struck me as far more important to the average Ghanaian than who people are intimately engaged with, right? LGBT people have always been a part of Ghanaian society. And while we tend to be seen as a a deeply conservative um, and religious society, we've generally left people to their own bedroom affairs. So yeah, I was shocked to see this bill presented. Why do you think it's on the agenda now? This is a good question. And I think maybe it's happening now because really across the continent, we are seeing this wave of religious fundamentalism that is predominantly being spurred on by Western evangelical and conservative groups, right, who are seeking power and domination in Africa. So, for example, in 2019, the World Congress of Families held its first regional African conference here in Accra, Ghana, which I attended. And, you know, the the hate and fear mongering and the disinformation was quite palpable. Right. And so this is something that um, has been encouraged and promoted and funded, really, by outside institutions that are seeking to, to basically dominate the African landscape. And so I think that's that's a big part of what is pushing these anti-LGBT actors to introduce these kinds of bills across the continent. So the World Congress of Families is, is an American conservative organization. Why do you think they're allowed to have so much influence in Ghana? I think that organizations like the World Congress of Families, they play on a colonial context that that pre-existed, right? And so what the colonial era did is that it created a, a context in which African sexuality was demonized, was seen as sinful, immoral, and grotesque, right? And so many of us through decades, right, of, of this kind of socialization, this religious socialization, have come to believe that non-heteronormative relations are bad, are grotesque, indecent, immoral, etc. And so I think that that creates an environment where it then becomes easy for these Western actors, these religious groups to come along and say that, you know, this is, this is an abomination and this is destroying your society. I think one of the things that I learned when attending the World Congress of Families is that they really use the language of de- development and you know, developmental progress as, an, as a nation and making the link between a strong nuclear family that is man, wife and children 
and the developments of Ghana and African nations. And so what they've been able to do through this disinformation campaign is presents this idea that, listen, your nation isn't progressing because of this influence and this influx of LGBT people, which doesn't even make any sense. But I think that they've been able to play on people's fear and people's hopes also of, of economic development and progress across the region. What are your key concerns about the bill? I mean, obviously the bill has quite extraordinary, extreme draconian legislation in it. 10 years for advocacy for LGBTQI plus rights, five years if you identify as LGBTQI plus. So I imagine that it's all a concern for you, but are there very particular areas of concern? Yeah, I mean, like, apart from the fact that this this bill is, is generally just wildly unconstitutional, right? It's unconstitutional to di- deny us our human rights and dignity as citizens of Ghana. There are some very concerning parts about the bill, including the forced corrective surgery for intersex people. Um, also, our inability to sustain advocacy groups as communities and allies and the legal obligation for any and everyone, including service providers and our own family members, to report us to the authorities. And beyond all of that, I think what is most worrying about this bill is that even though it does have some language about, you know, prosecuting those who take the law into their own hands against us, in reality, if you create a law that criminalizes my identity, then it thwarts my access to justice against said perpetrators of violence, right? Because perpetrators know that I'm less likely to report them to the authorities because my entire identity and existence as a queer person is seen as illegal. And I could potentially be thrown in jail just by reporting the violence that happens against me. So really, there is no real safety for us if this bill is passed. And for you, what do you see its likely impact on your work and your life? I mean, we've already seen the impact of this proposed bill. I first think about the communities that I engage with and that I belong to. Many community members feel a sense of hopelessness and despair about Ghana, right? A lot of folks are struggling with their with depression and mental health and substance abuse. Many people are struggling to get support in situations of intimate partner violence because they're afraid of being reported to the police, right? And I think I think for my own work and, and just for myself as, as a Ghanaian, as somebody who lives in this country, it makes it very unsafe for me to exist, right? And I worry about that, right? I worry about people who have less access, right, to, uh, to leave the country, right? If something were to happen to them, many people couldn't leave. And I think for, for myself as an activist, it makes it harder to do this work because you're always worried about potentially being harmed and thrown in jail. How far do you think this marks a new departure in attitudes towards the community in Ghana? Because obviously same-sex relations were already illegal, but this seems to be a very extreme turn. Definitely. Um, You know, Ghana has always sort of been seen as a culturally and socially conservative society. Um, However, the more hate and disinformation that is spread about the community, the more we become a target of violence. And so in an effort to gain political points with the Ghanaian populace, politicians and religious leaders are essentially throwing us under the bus and creating the impression that we are a bigger threat to the society than we actually are. 
many people in Ghanaian society are either illiterates or semi-literates, right? And so they rely a lot on their leaders to give them accurate information about the society and to guide their sense of morality and wisdom and knowledge, right? And a lot of people are taught not to question their leaders or think for themselves. And what we now have is many leaders spreading this disinformation about the LGBT community, and it feeds into an environment of hostility, So people who would have previously not known or even cared about what was going on in people's bedrooms are suddenly activated to become hateful. And so I definitely think that this has impacted how we see each other within Ghanaian society. And it troubles me deeply. I think that a lot more people, because it's now in the media and it's now in the mainstream, you see that a lot of people's opinions are being shaped by their leaders. And it's not good. It it generally continues to create an atmosphere of of violence and discrimination. And you mentioned earlier that there are signs of resistance in the community against this climate. How much support is there in the wider community? Or is the LGBTQI plus community very isolated? So I think this is complicated as well, because I think that, first of all, I mean, my, my vantage point is, is working within the community and seeing the kinds of resistance that we are undertaking. And I think it's important to note that first, right? That before anybody else, before allies, before anybody else has, has come out to support us, we have been protesting and we have been resisting, right? And really our survival has, is our resistance. And it's clear that this bill wants to disappear as and we continue to find ways to create community and art and love. Right. And we find ways to document um, uh, what is happening to us, which is also a form of protest. But I will say that I think through some of our online social media campaigns, I think that we're seeing more people become aware of how unjust and how violent this bill is. And so, for example, certain certain, uh, musicians like the legendary musician Reggie Rockstone came out to show his support for love and tolerance for LGBT people. And I thought that was amazing. We've seen other musicians like One Love, the Kuvalo and Sister Derby, who've produced music with queer artists to, you know, to spread this message and to, to speak out against this hate. And I think it's great. I think I want to see more people, you know, there are a lot of LGBT people who work in the entertainment space, in the creative arts space supporting some of our big stars in Ghana. And I'd like to see some of those big stars who are friends with LGBT people, you know, behind closed doors, come out and show their support for the community. And how hopeful are you of defeating the bill? What needs to happen for the bill to be defeated? I think we need a critical mass in Ghana. I think that, look, there are a lot of issues in modern day Ghana right now. And I don't think that LGBT rights and and banning or criminalizing LGBT people should be at the top of that list, right? And I think that we need to come together as a society and recognize this as a distraction, that this fear-mongering, this witch hunt against LGBT people is a distraction for some of the very real issues around corruption, around economic disadvantage that exists in, in contemporary Ghana. And I think the best way that we're going to be able to fight this bill is if we come together as citizens and recognize that we have bigger issues than criminalizing people's identities and their existence. How hopeful am I of defeating the bill? I don't know if I can answer that question, but I what I can tell you is that I have no other choice but to keep fighting because it, my very survival as a queer woman depends on it. Marco Mihailovic is a leading LGBTQI plus activist based in Belgrade. 
In 2022, he successfully ran the city's campaign to host the pan-European Europride, which was initially cancelled following a backlash from far-right groups, religious groups and other opponents. Our reporter Nicola Kelly spoke to Marco and began by asking him about the bid for Serbia to host Europride, what they campaigned on and how the community felt in the lead-up to the event last year. When we started thinking about Europride, it was well before uh, 2019. And our whole idea was to utilize Europride as a tool to draw attention to the serious issues in human rights uh, abuse and the, the lack of legislation that would lead to equality or greater equality of the LGBTI plus community with the society in Serbia. So we wanted to bring Europride to Serbia and as a tool to show uh, the depth of the problems that our community is facing, not only in Serbia, but throughout the Western Balkans, especially the non-EU countries. The first Belgrade Pride actually took place after the democratic overturn in 2001. The LGBT activists from that time thought that uh, now when we've overtaken the Milosevic's regime, the time has come to fight for uh, greater freedoms. And they organized the first Pride. It ended up with everybody getting beaten up, extreme violence, and the lack of uh, proper protection from the police. And those were shocking scenes that I think are still embedded in the collective mind. And then in the following nine years, there were no Prides. They were two attempts to organize them, but they didn't uh, come through. And then in 2010, we had our second Belgrade Pride. At that time, it was done in some type of coordination with the government, but it ended up being about 500 people marching the Pride, 10,000 police officers, the whole city locked down, tanks, anti-riot police, uh, anti-terrorist police. And on the other side, there were tens of thousands of hooligans creating riots, citywide distraction. And then what followed was three years of unconstitutional bans of the Pride. And then in 2019, after our Pride, we've uh, successfully bid to host Europride in 2022. And we beat Barcelona, Porto, uh, Lisbon, Dublin, Mas Palomas. And we've, I think we broke the record with the greatest number of support for our bid. And it was because the other Pride organizers who get to vote, who gets to host uh, Europride in three years, understood our idea, which was to bring uh, Europride in a country where we actually are still fighting a very basic fight and are st still fighting for basic rights and uh, are trying to tackle some issues that the Western European countries have faced 20, 30 years ago. So with that backdrop, with the far-right attacks on the one hand and then the huge achievement of winning the bids for Serbia to be the host of Euro Pride, how did all of that make the LGBTQ plus community feel, both in Serbia and internationally? And were you expecting a big turnout? When we won the bid for Euro Pride 2022, uh, all of the press reported on it. Luckily, they were very co cooperative and uh, they... They started reporting in a positive or neutral way that we've succeeded in hosting Europride. That, but in 2021, the people from the 
extreme far right started creating uh, like doomsday scenarios that uh, there will be hundreds of thousands of gays who are going to come and try to overthrow the government. There were so many conspiracy theories. But then in 2022, I think somewhere around May, the situation became even worse because there was a lot of people calling to to protest against Euro Pride. And some of them, actually one of the church, Serbian Orthodox Church's high-ranking priests or bishops, he said that he doesn't have guns, but if he did, he would use it to stop the Pride, the Euro Pride. Of course, he wasn't even questioned or detained. And there were many, many, many hate speech in the media, a lot of uh, calls for violence, a lot of anti-Pride protests. And the strangest thing is that the newly elected mayor of Belgrade uh, started leading the campaign against Europride. And then in May, uh, President Vucic said that the Pride will be canceled. It left a lot of scars in my soul and my to see how your freedom can be so easily taken away. And it just reminded me that, you know, you people tend to take things for granted, granted especially in Europe, where they think democracy and human rights are something that are there and they're not going to go away. You said that with the cancellation of Europride, you felt scars in your soul, which you still carry with you. What was the response from the rest of the community in Serbia and internationally? You know, this event, I, I think from our side as the organizer, I wasn't the only one. There was a lot of uh, problems behind the scene. And I think what we failed to do is to use this event to build up the community and empower them. That's That was one of the goals of why we wanted to host your pride, to use it to, you know, in Serbia, people from the LGBT plus community are never, are not out. There's very few people that are willing to publicly step up and, uh, joined the Pride, you know, at most before your Pride, we had 2,000 people and Belgrade is a city of 2 million. So we really wanted to use this community to give them an opportunity to share their lives, their problems, the issues, to share their stories. But uh, we w- weren't very successful with that. And I think this event uh, really gave, show, showed us in what society we live in. And that uh, luckily woke up a lot of people and they understood that we're on the right side and so they supported us. Europe and Belgrade was a mess and I think the only good thing that came from it is that you know you can't really lie anymore. This is the situation. The government is not behind us. The government has no intentions of regulating the issues that the LGBT plus people face in this country, for example, lack of legislation. We have been promised that we will get the law on same-sex unions for years now. Nothing is happening regarding that. Uh, Our safety is not taken for serious. When we are victim of hate crimes, we we don't get satisfaction in the courts. The police doesn't react. And there were even some violent uh, situations right in front of the police where people who came out of the Pride concert got beaten up and the police didn't react. So it's quite shocking to see all of that. And it's quite devastating to understand that people who are supposed to, you know, work in your benefit and who are supposed to protect the citizens are not doing that. You mentioned legislation and same-sex unions still not being lawful in Serbia. What do you think it will take to change social attitudes and what are the main areas for reform as you see it? 
Well, the only thing that's necessary is political will, because, you know, our parliament is majority controlled by this one party, by the ruling party, and everybody's controlled by the president. So there's, if they wanted to, to adopt a law, they would adopt it. They wouldn't face any issues. On the other hand, Montenegro, a country southern of Serbia, adopted it and, you know, the sky is still blue, everything goes on, there were no issues there. So I think if they wanted to do it, they could do it and they could do it quite easily, but they don't want to do it. And that's the problem. And it's only a lack of political will because we have a an amazing draft of the law. We have a lot of, you know, a lot of system in place that would allow it to be, to pass. And we do have a, a lesbian PM in a very popular ruling party. So they could push for it, but they just don't want to. How much freedom would you say there is for the community in Serbia to stand up in public for its rights uh, and be able to protest? There's not enough freedom in Serbia because we're we're in a very strange hybrid system because if you deem to say anything against or critical towards the government, you can get slammed in the tabloids. The whole machinery will go against you. You will be deemed a traitor, a foreign agent, and your safety could be endangered. I remember one time last, there was a, a graffiti art of some convicted war criminal that popped up in Belgrade. And this uh, very prominent human rights offenders, uh, this woman, she threw eggs uh, at the at the graffiti art and she got arrested in a quite violent way. And that night we went out on the street to protest her arrest and to demand the city to erase the face of that convicted war criminal from from the wall in the city center. And we've, uh, some of us, we were communicating through a WhatsApp group and all of those messages got leaked to the tabloids. So I think uh, the Secret Service and the tabloids, you know, they're all controlled and they're all used as a tool to combat political opponents. And it's a very scary situation to live in because it often leads leads people to auto-censor themselves it's, it doesn't create a lot of space to hear another opinion. Looking to the future, what are your concerns about the battle for equality? What what still needs to change in your view? Well, the main concern is that there's not enough people willing to publicly fight for it. There's like 20 activists and we're all, most of them have been there for many, many years, if not decades. And I think people are not interested to hear our story and we're not motivating enough people to join and up. So I'm very concerned whether the youth of Serbia is politically interested to get involved in this fight because you don't get anything from it except problems, but you have to do it because there's nobody else who's going to do it. So I'm very concerned what's going to happen with our community, what's going to happen with our position in the society. I just hope that this will wake some people up and that they will stand up for themselves and what's right. And what's right is not up for debate. Freedom and democracy are not, isn't another system that's better than that. You know, it might be a faulty system, but there's not a better one. You've been listening to Boundaries of Expression from Article 19, produced and presented by Joe Glanville and Nicola Kelly, recorded and mixed at Bison Studios in London. If you'd like to find out more about Article 19's work defending freedom of expression, please visit article19.org and read the latest report on the right to protest.